Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the Northern Agenda podcast with me, Rob Parsons. I'm a journalist living in Leeds who writes a daily newsletter about politics in the north of England for Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News and Liverpool Echo. This podcast gives us a chance to take a longer look at some of the bigger stories in our region and get under the skin of some of our most fascinating political figures. And on today's episode, we've got a guest who's been a major player in national politics for the best part of three decades. As Tony Blair's official spokesman and director of communications, Alistair Campbell, was in the room where it happened for some of the biggest decisions of the last Labour government. Now a journalist, author, strategist, broadcaster and activist, he's got a new book out about how people can get involved in politics, but he's got strong links to the North too, as someone who grew up in Keighley, West Yorkshire, and is an avid supporter of Burnley FC. I've been asking him about what he makes of the current state of Northern politics and levelling up, and what his old boss, Tony Blair, ever did for the North. So listen to that in a few minutes. First, though, let's catch up with some of the biggest politics stories over the last few days. And it has been a hectic week since we put last week's podcast out on the Friday morning of the local elections. In the North, you have been making your mind up about who you want running town halls for Middlesbrough to Merseyside, and the result was gains for Labour almost everywhere. Across the North, Labour gained around 100 councillors, and the Conservatives lost a similar number. But elsewhere in the country, the picture was much worse. Does this mean Rishi Sunak has met his Waterloo as he tries to win over the electorate ahead of next year's general election? Or can his poll ratings rise like a phoenix? The other big news announced today as we record this podcast is that after a month of poor service, TransPennine Express, the operator responsible for trains across the north, will have its services taken over by the government. Will the decision to nationalise TransPennine end the chaos on our railways or even make things who are just a little bit better? We will find out in the next few months. But for the next few days, if you're in the city of Liverpool, There's only one story in town, and that is the Eurovision Song Contest. The eyes of the world will be on Merseyside as the UK hosts the annual pop extravaganza on behalf of Ukraine. So who better to talk to than a journalist who has been sampling the atmosphere in the city already? The Liverpool Echoes, Liam Thorpe. Liam, how are you? I'm good. I'm a a little bit uh, tired today after uh, enjoying uh, the festivities at the the Euro Village last night. But uh, you know me, I'm, I'm professional. I can crack on. Always a professional. Well, I imagine there's a lot of festivities to enjoy. In your uh, in your tired state, you may not have noticed that I, I did it ever so subtly, but I managed to smuggle the names of a few famous Eurovision hits into my intro just now. You probably didn't realise. Very subtle, that, Rob. 
fairly subtle. And it, it, it's been hard to escape Eurovision on the news. But just, I mean, obviously you were there last night taking in some of what's going on. Just give us a sense of how Liverpool as a city has embraced Eurovision. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was ever in doubt. Right from the, the moment we knew that we were we were getting it. Um, you'll remember that we... we um, defeated Glasgow in, in the final um, uh, final round of, of the competition to get and host this competition. That was, that was sort of last autumn. And since then, it's 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 never really been in doubt that Liverpool would wholeheartedly uh, embrace Eurovision. It, it, it's not a city that really does things by halves. And it's a city that when you look at sort of Liverpool's kind of troubles in the in the 80s and the 90s, um, when, this, when the, the economy was in decline and there was mass unemployment, it's culture that has really brought Liverpool out of out of that and and sort of spearheaded the renaissance to the towards the international you know visitor economy that we have now here in the city and and this is a great example of it it's, it feels to me like Liverpool's new next big moment we had it in 2008 when it was awarded European Capital of Culture and Eurovision feels like the next big moment and the city is absolutely buzzing like it, you, you can't go anywhere without uh, without being reminded of Eurovision whether that's the stuff that's been put around the place by the council. We've got loads of uh, great like art installations all around the city. Down at the pier head, which is the, the the Eurovision Village, is just electric. It's like a it's like a festival. You've got you know amazing bands, and I went to see the Lightning Seeds last night, who were a nineties favourite of mine. Um, although I was slightly depressed that a lot of my younger colleagues had never heard any of their songs as I was singing along. Like they not heard the the life of Riley. <laughs> they Classic. didn't seem to know it. I know, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it, and and the other thing that's great is. There's so many people from all over the world here. You know, we've met people from all over Europe, from the States, from Australia, people who've come here especially for this. It's And and and, and the Eurovision um, fanatics, who, of course, are here in their droves, there was a, a train that pulled into Lime Street um, the other day, a specific Eurovision fan train with hundreds of Eurovision fanatics. And, you know, they're all saying they go to this competition wherever it is, and they are all saying that this is this is the city that has embraced it the most. And that's really that makes us really proud, and and it's it's brilliant for us here, and it's going to do wonders for our local economy as well. But obviously, we are we are hosting this on behalf of Ukraine, and there's a lot of Ukrainian people here who've managed to come over as well. I met some the other day, um, some some refugees who are now living in Poland, and they've managed to come over for the week, and and they're so touched and so moved by how Liverpool is doing this. You know, we are very much doing this for Ukraine, and you can see that everywhere you go, Ukraine flags all over the city. So yes, yeah, it's, it's um. It's a hell of a party, but it's it's we're doing it for a, a very important reason as well. Yeah, absolutely. The, the one thing I thought was quite uh, funny was, so as a government minister, uh, Stuart Andrew, he's a West Yorkshire MP, he's been in Liverpool all week, and it appears that his job, his actual job title is Eurovision Minister for the government, which is, is quite a title. I'm not sure what that actually entails in terms of what he's doing. <laughs> I presume he just has to wear some some glitter and some mad outfits as well. And yeah, he, he seems, uh, my colleague David Humphrey spoke to him yesterday and he, he seems to be really, really enjoying himself. I think it's impossible at the moment to be in Liverpool and not be having a good time. It's just, it's, the place is just alive. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the other thing I thought was interesting was Stuart Andrew was talking about how well it's been organised so far in, in, in Liverpool, which is quite a feather in the cap of Liverpool Council and the local authorities in in Liverpool, which feels like a mu- sort of much needed for the council, because obviously it's been a pretty rough couple of years for local politics, hasn't it, in in, in Liverpool? And like you've reported on things like the uh, you know the parking tickets that were being rescinded in a sort of an, a under the table kind of way, and the council forgetting to change its electricity supplier, and then landing local schools with a massive 
bill. Like it, it's it's been it's been tough times for Liverpool Council, but they played a role in this pretty what seems to be so far a massive success. So I mean, it could be a bit of a turning point for them as well. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And, let, and let's not forget that this was a, a, a risk that they took. That they took when um, when the council and the mayor at the time and, and the cabinet members when they said yes to to bidding for Eurovision, Liverpool was facing a, another eighty million pounds of cuts. And as you mentioned, all the recent troubles. I mean, we've got commissioners in. I did a sit down with the with the mayor actually on her her last day in office, um, and she said that the commissioners as you can imagine, weren't weren't that thrilled about going forward with this because, you know, they're there to to sort of say no to things really. Um but but the mayor and the others said, look, we've had such a tough time. Things have things have been difficult. This is the most positive thing we can do. And yeah, you're right. I mean I think in in, in other times culture again has kind of brought Liverpool out of difficult moments. And I think it's doing that again. The the, the culture team at the council are are like in are you know nationally renowned they're, they're really well thought of we've had we always have massive events like the giants and things like the champions league parades and, and stuff so they, they know what they're doing but this is obviously another level really and so far it's been it's been done brilliantly it's 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 taken a hell of a lot of work and and importantly the you know the mayor said already before before this was last week before a single person had come and stayed in the city they'd they'd made about 20 million from their two million uh, investment so when you when you add in all the kind of impact on the local businesses, hotels, bars, restaurants, it's going to be absolutely huge, and, and it's, you know it's going to be a massive success for the city. So let's move on to the local elections now, because in 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 politics, that's been the subject sort of overshadowing uh, everything else. I think in the last few days, and it, it seems to me that a lot of the coverage has been about what it means for Rishi Sunak. Is he going to have to? sort of tack to the right to uh, to try and appeal to voters who aren't backing him at the moment, whether Keir Starmer would consider a coalition with the, the Lib Dems or the SNP. But actually, there's been a lot of fascinating local sort of election stories that it would be quite easy to easy to miss. Um, and it, so in, in your patch in, in Merseyside, you've been following Liverpool elections closely, obviously, but some of the others on Merseyside as well. So just, just take us through some of the highlights. Yeah, so if we start with Liverpool, because it's, it's the big city here, um, it was a really kind of pivotal and significant set of elections for a number of reasons, really. As you say, the, the council's been going through a lot of trouble recently. Um, it's still got government commissioners overseeing things. Um, it, there was also a load of sweeping reforms that came in, which meant that the whole way that elect- uh, elections are run here has changed. We've now moved to a position where they are all out elections every four years, rather than previously a third of the council would be elected every year um, in in three years. So so all everyone out at once, which is provides a level of chaos, um, especially for our reporter at the count trying to keep keep tabs of it all. Uh, they were also made up of new wards as well, lots of very small wards with just one councillor. In the end, though, the result was pretty similar to, to what we usually have and what we already had, which is a, a, a dominant win for Labour that they've got 61 of the 85 seats. We did, however, see some the other sort of story of the, the election was that three of the three former Labour councillors who left as part of a rebel bloc, they were they were elected as independents and they were big results for them. Um, but yeah, Liverpool now has a new leader because the, the mayoralty is going as well. So loads of change. The new leader is... Uh, he's the new leader of Labour, Liam Robinson. He's expected to be sworn in as the leader of the council next week. Um, and the mayor, Joanne, she is gone. She's left the council altogether. So, yeah, he's, he's announced his new cabinet, some some old faces, some new faces. And to be to be honest, from what everyone said about Liam Robinson, and I have met him, he does seem to be 
very well thought of, uh, a sort of sensible, decent person who's who you know a lot of people think could could hopefully uh, lead the council into a, a better few years. So that's Liverpool. The the, the other really big story um, is Wirral. Um, so Wirral was our only council that was in no overall control in Merseyside. It's been like that since 2019. Uh, with Labour the biggest party, but not big enough to make a majority. Um, going into these elections, Labour really wanted to to take that full majority. And if you look at the way that election results went across the country, you, you, you would have given them a good chance of doing that. But they didn't quite make it. They took some Tory seats. They took some good wins there. But the pesky the pesky Greens came up and, uh, and dented their hopes, really. So... Following that, and the fact that they didn't quite um, land that majority, I mean, they'd really gone for it as well. They'd had Ed Miliband up, Rosanna Allen Khan. You know, it was definitely a, a an aspiration. Um, and following that, on the the Monday following the elections, um, a, a a dramatic coup uh, occurred. Basically, the deputy leader Paul Stewart had been gathering support and um, got enough to basically um, overthrow Jeanette Williamson, who's been the leader of Labour and the leader of the council for the last few years. And yeah, he's he's now the leader of the Labour group, but he's going to have to because it's in no overall control. He's potentially going to have to reach out to other parties to get the the leadership vote. And we've heard that he's been he has been uh, talking to the Tories, and there's the suggestions that some uh, some influential committee chair roles could be could be going their way, which is obviously pretty controversial given the state of national politics. And the Tories were very welcoming of his of his uh, election as Labour leader, which. You know, most Labour leaders wouldn't want that response, but um, yeah, so that that that's very very interesting. Um, and elsewhere in our in our area, it was pretty much what you'd expect. Nosley, very very strong Labour results with a few green wins, and in in Sefton, another a really really good night for Labour. They they added five seats to their already strong majority. So as you'd expect across Merseyside, it's it's pretty pretty Labour led picture, but you have got that interesting drama over on the Wirral. Yeah, that will be interesting to have a Labour leader propped up, as it were, by uh, Conservative councillors. I think that would raise a few eyebrows, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So the final thing we were going to talk about, Transpennine Express, uh, as we're recording this on Thursday lunchtime, uh, it's a few hours after Mark Harper, the Transport Secretary, has announced that as of May the 28th, an operator of last resort will run the train services that Transpennine Express had previously operated. So that's trains from basically across across the Pennines into Manchester and Liverpool and then over into Teesside and, and, and the North East. So it's a lot of trains. It's one of the bigger operators in the region. And, I mean, services have been terrible, you know, the worst in the country for quite some time. There had been a lot of pressure uh, on the government to do something about it. I mean, is this, from your point of view, is it, is it going to make any difference, do you think? It's hard to say that... Speaking to the likes of Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham about this, who have obviously been lobbying very hard for this decision to be made, um, they they did suggest to me that when this happened to Northern, that there was an improvement um, because obviously that, that there is a there is more opportunity for sort of direct intervention from from the government, which I guess is the whole point of of nationalisation. Um, so yeah, I think they had to they had to do this. I, I'm still quite surprised that they did because if you look at say Avanti, which has has been Nearly as, as as strongly derided from all quarters for its own performance, they were just given a an extension. So I think the the beleaguered rail passenger in me just kind of expected Transpennine to get an extension. But Mark Harper has taken this um, this decisive move, and I think you know he deserves credit for that. And I know that Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham, Tracy Braben are all very pleased about that. I think Andy Burnham said it's sort of like light at the end of the tunnel. It feels like 
they've been listened to on this one. Um, but, you know, it remains to be seen what, what will happen next. I think what's quite amusing is, as someone who who is an advocate for the nationalisation of the railways, you've got a Tory government now, which, which is obviously very against that policy, that is kind of by default nationalising rail operators because they're just not working under the private the private system that we have and there hasn't been enough accountability. So this is a start, I think, and it's and I think it's proof that this, for me, this the privatisation of the rail network has not worked, for particularly for people across the north. You know what it's like trying to get across our cities. I've got family in Manchester. I live in Liverpool. That shouldn't be a difficult journey, but often it is. And uh, I think we, we shared one at one point and <laughs> shared some pictures of it. It's, you know, people in the north have been putting up with horrendous conditions, um, both on board trains and then not being able to get trains. The amount of stories we've done of people who are saying that they, they have to tell their bosses that every day there is a chance they'll be late for work because of this. That's that shouldn't be how it how it how it is in our in our great cities in the north. So yeah, hopefully it's a it's a start of a, a step change in how these companies are held to account for their performance. This is three major rail operators now in the north of England that have been put into national control. Although although I was seeing uh, interestingly today uh, the train operators with the worst cancellation scores most recently, Transpennine is way out in front. Sixteen point nine percent of their trains are cancelled, which is a mind-boggling figure, but also in the top six are Northern and uh, LNER, the, uh, the, which runs services from London to through, through Yorkshire into the North East. So I totally agree that like, the current system is not working. Where the nationalisation is a silver bullet, I think most people would think that, say that it's not, go- it's not going to make an immediate impact. And actually, in the case of Transpennine, they've got some quite specific problems that nationalisation won't do anything about for example there's a, a a breakdown of relations with the rail union aslef which means that there's no rest day working time agreement which leads to massive gaps in the rotor they seem to have a, a a sickness rate that's higher than anywhere else and also they're trying to train a lot of staff um for a new a new route all of which is contributing to the major problems they've been having so i think in 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 i guess the important thing to let people know is that in the in in the near future, not much is going to change. The trains will be the same. The people driving them will be the same. The problems will be the same. But like you say, hopefully, with a bit more opportunity for government intervention and maybe the intervention of politicians in the north, they'll be able to have a more of a say on it. Things might gradually get better. That's the hope, anyway. I think it is a big moment for the the northern mayors as well because you know how many events have, have me and you been at, Rob, where they're saying the same thing and it, and it must get a bit tiresome after a while with, with, with you know it's saying the same thing over and over again about the state of our transport about calling for transpennine to, to be to be you know to have this removed this contract and for that to actually happen i think it does feel it will feel like a big moment for for burnham and co that they are starting to be listened to obviously the results speak for themselves but they, they can definitely chalk this up as a bit of a win liam thank you so much And now let's hear from former number 10 Director of Communications, Alistair Campbell. Alistair Campbell, it's great to have you on the Northern Agenda podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I know your fellow Rest is Politics presenter, Rory Stewart, is not much of a football fan, I think it's fair to say. So maybe you don't get to talk about Burnley's recent very impressive promotion back to the Premier League but how are you how are you feeling about Burnley's 
prospect in the Premier League next season. I realise that's not a it's a, a football question, not a politics yeah. question. To well, I mean, Rory tries. I said to him this week, I'd, I'd kind of prefer it if he didn't even bother trying. He actually did a tweet saying how what a great goal by Manuel Benson that secured promotion for the Clarets. And I'm thinking, he didn't, I bet he didn't see it. He just, so. It's uh, always quite I, apparent, isn't it, when someone who doesn't yeah, play about football yeah, is trying yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah. wrestle in on that. No, I think, um, look, it's been, a, it's been an incredible season. You know, getting relegated last year, new manager, loads of new players, which often, you know, very, very rarely does that go well when you bring in literally kind of virtually a new squad. But he's managed to sort of meld. Vincent Company's managed to meld the ones who stayed and the ones who came in. It's been a great year. It's been absolutely fantastic this year. Uh, look, it's, it's always going to be hard for the smaller clubs to survive in the Premier League. You know, you're talking about the City and uh, Man United and Arsenal and Chelsea and now Newcastle as well. You're talking about clubs with seemingly bottomless pits of money. And... Um, Burnley won't be like that, but you know we'll we we we've, we we survived a few years last time round, and no reason why we can't do that again. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you're an avid Burnley supporter, but you grew up in Keighley in West Yorkshire in the sixties and seventies, and you went over the over the Pennines to find your your football club. I mean, tell us a bit about your about your growing up in in Yorkshire. Do you remember the area fondly? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I think that... So I was born in Keighley in 1957. Uh, Dad was a vet. Um, and the reason... the only We'd probably still be living there. I, you know, who knows what how life would have turned out. But my dad had a very bad accident when I was about 10. He was attacked by a, a sow. He was, he was vaccinating some piglets and this sow attacked him. And it was meant to have been tethered set away from where he was with these piglets. And it, it battered him up against a wall. He, he ended up quite badly injured. And then he was in hospital for a while. It's actually when I started writing diaries of sorts. Cause I used to write to him every day and tell him sort of, you know, my day and what I'd done and what have you. And But anyway, he went back to his practice but found it physically quite draining. Uh, he'd been pretty badly beaten up. And so he, 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 he sold his practice in Keithley and he joined the Ministry of Agriculture, which meant he could get moved anywhere and we got moved to Leicester. And that was really, you know, we had no family in Yorkshire apart from our own direct family because my dad, both my parents were Scots. Um, so it's really the football connection that's kept me going back up north in the way that I do. Um, but yeah, I have very, very fond memories of Keithley, of, uh, you know, lots of sport. I, I think... It's funny how you remember he plays tricks. I think I was always conscious of how beautiful it was around there in terms of the countryside. I think I don't think that's my kind of adult self telling me what I remember. I kind of I do remember a sense of wonder going around with my dad when he was, you know, going around all the farms and stuff. Um, good for you know, good friends when I was at school, but a, a friend from primary school that I still keep in touch with, John Bailey, who's uh, been having a bit of a rough time on the health front recently. So I hope he's. Uh, okay um but yeah very uh, nothing but fond memories really and then playing football playing rugby playing cricket going to see Keithley Cougars going to see Burnley following Yorkshire cricket yeah it was a very kind of sporting and happy childhood yeah so you like, like you say you come back to these areas for sporting reasons largely but I'm guessing you get a sense of sort of how Keighley and sort of you know mill towns in Lancashire have changed since the 60s when you were growing up to now, I mean, are, are they quite different places? Has the march of progress been kind in places like Blackburn and and, and Keighley? Do you think? 
I think it's a mixed picture. I think it's a very mixed picture. Uh, just to give you a sense of the, the scale of change, when I was at primary school, at Utley Primary School, I, I, think, I don't think there were any non-white children. And I went back to do a talk there a few years ago, and I think they were all non-white. Um, so that's, that's a kind of you know, dem- demographic, cultural change, I call it what you will. Uh, I was always very conscious. You know, we lived up in uh, just past Cliff Castle, quite a nice part of Keighley. To get into town, I had to walk through the, what would have then been defined probably as the kind of Pakistani area. And I, I just always, I think it's one of the reasons why I've always been so profoundly kind of anti-racist. I used to stop and talk to them. I used to like talking to them. I used to, you know, I just felt, and, and, and I think Keithley and Leicester are two of the first town cities to, to become majority non-white at a certain point. And uh, so I've always, I, I, I remember that. I remember, and it, it is interesting how you, here's a really weird story, right? So we lived in this house and we sold the house to a family, one of whose daughters later come to, came to live with us in Leicester. And we ended up, we ended up going out together for quite a few years. So it was like, and so that was another, but I wondered whether at a deeper level, that was also part of kind of wanting to find a reason to go back, you know. Um, so for the football, yeah, the football is definitely the, the thing that, that gets me going back. I do, I have got, a, you know, I've been back to watch Keithley Cougars a couple of times. I've still got friends in that area. But yeah, being absolutely honest, my main connection, my main reason to go north is to watch Burnley. You are back in uh, Yorkshire, a different part of Yorkshire, later this month, uh, the Rest is Politics live show coming to uh, Harrogate. I thought it was interesting that you've, obviously you've done a few live shows with the Rest is Politics. Some of them have been in, in London, but the ones you've done out of London have been, I think one was in Blackpool, wasn't it, last year? Yeah. And then you're going to Harrogate in May. And you've not gone to sort of the big cities like Manchester's or or Leeds to, to you know, to do these things where you meet the public. And... I mean, do you think you get you'd get a diff, you'll get a different crowd in these northern towns to the kind of, like different questions, different concerns to a London audience? Sort of when the kind of questions you get at London Palladium might be different from Harrogate or, or Blackpool. Uh, I don't. I don't know if it's as simple as that. I th- look, it'll depend very much on on the audience. These live shows have slightly taken me aback, to be honest. I mean, when they when the Albert Hall approached and said, look, we've got a free date, do you fancy doing the Albert Hall? I thought, well, you know, it's okay, we're getting a lot of people listening to the podcast, but it's a bit different to, you know, pay money to go and hear two blokes sit on stools and sort of blather away for the evening. But it sold out in no time, and so did the Palladium. And, no, I think you get a very broad range. I mean, I've done, I've been on, I've been sort of talking for, you know, doing events for year, many years now, going out and doing book festivals and book tours and this kind of thing, you do tend to get a similar kind of demographic goes to these sorts of events where you do And particularly this one, the one in Harrogate is actually the week after the book comes out. So I think, you know, the, the idea is that Rory's probably going to be talking to me about the book and he's got a book coming out in September and we'll do another event then when when I'll, I'll, I'll sort of reverse the, the roles. But I do enjoy these events. And, and the other thing you get from them, you know, it's like, okay, they're, they're self-selecting in that they obviously want to come and hear people like us talk, but it's very, very interesting to get a feel from them about where they see the world. So, for example, the last big one we did at the Palladium, I'd have 
you know, my sense of them, the reaction to us and what have you, was that they were broadly left of centre, very quite progressive, liberal-minded, really don't like the Tories in the main. And yet, when we started to do a kind of show of hands about, it sort of emerged they weren't really happy with anybody at the moment. Now, some were, obviously some are passionately pro-Labour, and there were a few in there who were kind of ideological Tories and, and Brexiteers. But So I think you, you can get a sense of where politics is sometimes from having a couple of thousand people in the same room and just saying to them, you know, how do you feel about things? And I get a lot out of these show, show of hands, you know. There's one we did recently where it was Rory Stewart actually said, you know, hands up if you can explain three keynote policies being put forward by the Labour Party. And very few hands went up, and 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 that says to you, that's a problem. You know, you got that's got to be resolved. So you get you get good feedback about what's actually happening in the kind of yeah. political. Well, it'd be interesting if you do a show of hands in Harrogate as a uh, you know traditionally well cons- either conservative or Lib Dem uh, area. I guess there were people coming from Leeds, weren't there? And they yeah, we've, I've had I've had messages from people who are coming from Lancashire, from Middlesbrough, from you know we had. I couldn't believe how far people travelled to the one at the Albert Hall. It was crazy. Let, let's talk about some some of the you know, contemporary issues, I suppose, that might come up in, in politics. I'm interested to know what you think of the concept of, of levelling up as someone whose job previously was to sort of explain political concepts and communicate them to the public in an effective way. I guess, I mean, my, my sense is that levelling up doesn't get spoken about as much now as it did perhaps two or three years ago. But in terms of, as, as a concept that, you know, Boris Johnson dreamed up to win over the Red Wall in 2019, I mean, what is it something we should take seriously? Has it slipped down the political agenda, do you think, in, in your view? Well, I think as a communication strategy, it was always very high up the agenda. I think as an actual policy strategy, it barely existed. I mean, I was, I was up at... Uh, at Burnley at the weekend and you know <laughs> trying to get a train to the game you there was you couldn't get a train to Preston uh Manchester they were saying don't use Manchester because there's the uh, they're, they're going to be very busy because of the money the sem- FA Cup semi-final so I went via Leeds and you get to Leeds and you've got to get on that kind of bone shaker across you know which was absolutely heaving and people telling me this is what it's like the whole time and it's you know what have you and you think well Northern Powerhouse was meant to be a big part of the whole kind of levelling up agenda for the North. And I, and I think with levelling up, what is levelling up? Levelling up means addressing inequalities. And I just don't think the government's got an agenda for that. And I think that the stuff that they are doing, they're trying to persuade people that having austerity, having kind of taken loads of money out of most public spending programmes in most parts of the programme, they've now got these little pots of money here and there. And they're hoping that people will forget all that and say, well, here's some money for a new gym centre or a new car park or whatever it might be and suddenly this is leveling up leveling up has got to be about opportunities that people have conservatives and i suppose it, perhaps if rory stewart was here he might make this point is that uh, michael gove who's probably one of the more able conservative ministers he's the guy in charge of making leveling up happen and he produced a i can't remember how many pages it was 350 400 yeah. page leveling up white paper with allusions to the medici family and all this kind of stuff so there is they would argue that there's some kind of intellectual rigor behind behind it but you're 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 not seeing it from your point of view i don't i don't see it and 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 i you see i think when you say michael goes very effective i think what michael goes very effective at is the communication side of things he, he communicates a sense of energy 
And the Tories have always got an advantage of that because, you know, most of our newspapers basically back the Tories. And it's like at the moment, the new, the new narrative is Johnson was terrible, Sunak was an, uh, Trust was an aberration, and Sunak's the grown-up in the room and he's getting stuff done. I don't see much progress. I don't see, I don't see what's actually being done by government. I see a very populist, camp, never-endingly campaigning organisation. Um, so, no, I, I'd, I'd feel, I think if I was living up north and if I was in one of those seats that switched from Labour to Tory, I'd feel, I'd feel very let down. And, and that's the sense I get, that people do feel let down. It's kind of widely accepted, or, or many, many people accept, that for those people that you're describing, so voters in areas of the north, that they voted for Brexit in 2016 and then for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives in 2019, a lot of times in places that had never voted Conservatives before, they, they did so because they felt their needs were being ignored or they had been ignored by governments of all stripes for years and years. And obviously that includes the government that you were part of in the in the 90s and, and, and noughties. I mean, do, do you understand that that feeling, that, 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 that sentiment? Do you think that's an explanation for why they voted the way they did? Uh, I think it's partly, I think it's partly that. I mean, I, I actually, you know, I write in the book about where I think if there was a big turning point that, that opened the door to this very infectious brand of populism, it was the global financial crisis. And what the Conservatives did very effectively politically, we just interviewed George Osborne for the podcast, and I said that, you know, I think what you did very politically is almost uniquely you managed to blame a, a sitting government in your own country for a crash that had been caused by factors primarily driven by, you know, the, more, the subprime mortgage market in the United States. And so that was, you know, all is fair in politics, etc. I'm not complaining about it. I'm just saying that as an observation. And I think what happened after that is that people felt that those who caused the crash got away with it. Those who didn't cause it paid a price in their mortgages and their jobs and the quality of uh, standard of living, etc. And then along comes austerity, which the Conservatives managed to persuade people was a necessity, which I don't believe that it was. And then along comes Brexit and populism with Johnson. And suddenly you've got this, this kind of cocktail where people... It's quite. It, it, I always thought Brexit was a con trick. I think Trump is a con man. I think Johnson's a con man. They persuaded people that problems that essentially were being created by the people they were voting for, that they were somehow the solution. Um, now, some of it was real. There are. I, I do. I go, you know, there are times when I'm in... I was obviously very sad when Burnley went to the Liberal Democrats and then last time around went to the Tories. You know, Burnley, when I was growing up and most of my lifetime has been a Labour seat. And I think actually, you know, I think we did a lot for working class communities in the North. But 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 did we transform them to the extent that people felt maybe we transformed other parts of the public realm? No, we didn't. And so therefore, that built resentment. And then I think the other thing that happened when, you know, with immigration, when when the European Union, the new European Union countries were we're joining the European Union and we had the opportunity to limit migration. At that point, our big thing was, was getting the economy functioning well, which, you know, until the, the crash, it really did. And part of what business was demanding was this, you know, kind of surge of, of uh, immigrant labor. 
um, to you know do all the stuff that we needed done on infrastructure and services and tourism and all the other stuff that immigrant labor was very very useful construction etc and so I think we underestimated the extent to which that would then play in to feelings about communities that the populists could come in and, and exploit in the way they did. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about places that were previously Labour strongholds going eventually to the Conservatives. Because I think, you know, and that's true in a lot of parts of the North, isn't it? Like, you know, if you, it wasn't that long ago that in places like Doncaster and County Durham, Labour would be weigh, weighing their votes Absolutely. rather than counting them. I mean, is, is there a... Is there an argument that in those kind of places, maybe Labour people thought there's never those people in County Durham, Bishop Auckland, Wakefield, etc., are never going to vote Conservative, no matter how bad things get, and therefore we don't need to be as mindful of their concerns as it turned out you probably did did have to be. I think that well, you mentioned Wakefield, so like Mary Cray, who was MP from Wakefield, I think I thought Mary was a terrific MP, uh, but there's no doubt it's a bit like in Scotland. With um, with the SNP, Labour Labour maybe took Scotland for granted. We just thought Scotland, by and large, hates the Tories. The SNP aren't taken being seen as that serious. I'm talking now, sort of you know, fifteen twenty years ago, and so we just kind of calculated that Scotland would politically say stay broadly the same. You can't take it for granted. It's like. You know, the big lesson of Scotland and of the so-called Red Wall is that, you, you know, you take places for granted at your peril. Um, and I think there is I, I think there is something wrong with our political system. I don't quite know how you fix it. It's part of what I've written the book about is how do we fix the mess that we've got our politics into. But there is something, I think, that, you know, people, when, when, when we were growing up, largely following parents in how you voted. I mean, that was, I'm not saying it was all people, but that was a, there was a tradition of voting Labour, a tradition of voting Tory or Lib Dem, whatever it was. I think as that's eroded, the whole concept of living in a safe Labour area or a safe Tory area is kind of just not respected in the way that it was. People feel they want a genuine choice. They want to feel that their vote can count. And so I think that's the other thing that's happened is that people have felt, well, if my vote is ultimately going to make no difference, why bother voting? Now, I always, I think everybody should vote. I think I actually would argue for compulsory voting. But I think that, I think that's another factor in this, that people felt wasn't just that the places were taken for granted, but actually their support was taken for granted as well. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. Obviously, Tony Blair was a MP in a northern uh, northern seat up in up in County Durham, and I'm, I'm interested in what his view was of the issues that are quite commonplace to talk about now. Sort of leveling up, I guess, is about regional inequalities and how a child born in one part of the country has worse life chances than a child born in another part of the country. You know, the north south divide, that kind of thing. My my sense, looking back on it now, is that that wasn't a sort of key thing that the Blair government was thinking about. And it was they, you were more working on the basis of, you know, a sort of a rising tide lifts all, all, all boats. And the, if the country is doing well, then the, then the poorer parts of the country will therefore be doing well. And you didn't give as much thought to how to sort of bridge the, 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 in, the, the inequalities in, in, in within, within the country. Is that, is that a fair assessment, do you think? 
No, I don't think it is. I think if you look back at, I think one of the worst things this government has done is getting rid of Shorestart, for example. Now, Shorestart wasn't a north-south thing. It was about how do you help young children get a decent start in communities that might be struggling, left behind, deprived, whatever you want to call it. And a lot of those were in the north. A lot of them were in the So a lot of the best work that Shorestart did was in the north of England. But you have to remember the reason why we once did a thing in um, when I was working in number 10, we did a, a report on the north-south divide trying to show that there were actually greater inequalities within regions of the UK than there were between regions of the UK. Some of the worst poverty in the country is in London. Some of the worst poverty in the country is in Cornwall. Cornwall's got, you know, abject poverty in, in certain places. There are parts of the north that are very affluent. And I think it's I think it's dangerous to have this sense. I don't like the phrase the North-South divide because although I understand what it, why people use that phrase and they basically mean that the power is in the South, that the, the money is in the South, the population often is in the South. But at the same time, there's a danger that it, that it kind of it limits the potential and the appeal of the North. Um, so I think it's important to understand that, that sense. I think we were about ad- addressing inequality and inequalities were at their most, at their, at their worst, often in the poorer areas of the North. But we, did, we were doing it through some of these national programs. Another one I would mention is New Deal, New Deal for Communities or the New Deal for the Young Unemployed. I don't have the data to hand, but you know, a lot of those people who benefited from that program would have been in the South, London and the Southeast because there was a lot of youth unemployment here as well. But I suspect that proportionately, that program would have helped people in the North more. Interesting. Now, one of New Labour's big achievements was helping to set up the uh, devolved institutions in Scotland and Wales. But in terms of you know handing power to the English regions, obviously there was John Prescott's uh, attempt to get regional assemblies in 2004, which uh, were rejected by yeah. voters uh, with with the help of Dominic Cummings, who was campaigning on the uh, mm. on the other side. But that was kind of as far as it got, as far as I can see. But now these days in 2023, devolution of powers to areas like Greater Manchester and Teesside is now accepted as being a good thing and sort of a key part mm. of leveling up and bridging these inequalities. I mean, do, do you think, is that a good thing in, in your view? Is that something that you could have maybe moved a bit more towards doing in, in, when, when you were in power? I mean, Tony was always very, very keen on elected mayors. Uh, there were other people within the sort of senior levels of the party who were less keen, but he was always pushing on that. John Prescott, as you say, very supportive of, of devolution, particularly as far as the north of England was concerned. But in the end, we are, you know, we do live in a, a democracy and major constitutional change tends to get decided by referendum. I, I remember the, the referendum for the, the Northern Assembly and it, it was very, it just never felt like it was igniting. It, it felt like, and I think maybe we were slightly a victim of our own success. We got this massive majority in 1997. There was a sense that we were changing the country for the better. And, pe- and it was quite easy for the opponents, like Cummings, to sort of say, well, why on earth would you want another layer of politics? That's, you know, and talking shop and jobs for the boys and all the easy sort of lazy lines. But I think that, you, when, you know, whether it's London, Sadiq Khan, whether it's Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham in Liverpool, Tracy Brabin in West Yorkshire, and, you know, I'd say Andy Street in, in, in Birmingham. I'm a bit worried about this guy Houch and up in Teesside. I really don't. You know, that's an interesting example of where 
okay, this free this whole Freeport thing, that's right. You know, I think that's right on Rishi Sunak's. In the book, I describe it as this: it's all part of this sovereign individual. It's like you know, the people who've got wealth and power should be able to amass more by not being constrained in the same way that others might be. Now we'll see how it plays out, but there's a bit of a whiff to the whole thing at the moment that I think uh, the media should be digging into. I see the Yorkshire Post has been really getting stuck into that, and I think it's yeah, right and they're doing private it. and private eye as well. well private eye, some yeah, really good, some good stuff on it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's interesting. Well, you, you mentioned. Um, Andy Burnham, who I, I guess you could argue is perhaps the most sort of well-known, sort of influential politician in the north of England at the moment. He's Greater Manchester Mayor. He's you, know, you, know, he's, you know, you you wouldn't you wouldn't count Richie Sunak as a Northern MP then? Well, <laughs> well, I guess he is. That's true. He does. And he do, he does describe. He did describe himself as the most Northern Chancellor uh, that there'd ever been. Jobs, which, jobs are good enough. But is that is that right? He goes around saying jobs are good enough. I, 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 I have heard. I have heard that. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, well, to be fair, he. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, William Hague has written about this. He Rishi Sunak arrived in rural North Yorkshire as a a candidate in 2010 and uh, even though he was as far removed from the sort of North Yorkshire farming community as he could possibly be he, it, he did seemingly win over the local yeah. by getting you know milking milking cows at five yeah, in the morning yeah. and getting yeah. stuck in and all that kind of thing so I guess you could call him an, ado- an adopted yeah adopted northerner yeah. I mean I'm an adopted northerner myself I, I'm not originally from uh, from Leeds but I live here now so I can't really uh, cast <laughs> cast aspersions on people who weren't originally born here but um, Andy Burnham, yeah, I'd be interested in your your view on this because I think I don't think your time in government coincided with uh, with his. But obviously, he's a very yeah, it did, it did. Oh, okay, but he's a very effective uh, politician, uh, and he's you know he he's, he seems to be making quite a lot of progress in Greater Manchester. I mean, do you think is is he just biding his time until he can re-enter national politics, maybe under a Labour government, or can he achieve? Can you achieve just as much? these days as a powerful sort of reg- regional regional mayor than you could in as part of a, a national government? Yeah, I think it's... Uh, my sense of Andy is that he's really committed to the job that he's doing and to the place that he's doing it. Um, would, you know... He, and, and it's interesting how politicians develop. Andy was a young minister in... Well, first of all, he was a special advisor to Tessa Jowell, then he became a, an MP. Then he became a minister, and yeah, I think he was in the cabinet by the time I'd. Uh, I think he, we sort of crossed over a bit, um, but certainly he's a very look. I think he's really made a mark in terms of what he does as mayor of Manchester. He really has, um, and you know whether he comes back into Westminster politics, I don't know. I I, I wouldn't be surprised if he if he actually felt right now he was achieving more than maybe he would as a as a cabinet minister or a, whatever it might be. It's interesting, you know, I live in Camden in the south and in London and um, Georgia Gould, who was Philip Gould, my closest friend, and, you know, fellow kind of colleague in the Labour Party, his daughter, Georgia, tried to get a seat as an MP a few years ago and, it, and it, she didn't succeed. She was already in local politics. She's now leader of the council here and I don't know whether she's thinking about having another go at being an MP, but I wouldn't be surprised if she's not. Because I think people, if you're in in government, even though local government is so tough at the moment because of funding constraints, 
it's, you know, I think there's something great about being able to see that you can get stuff done. And so Andy Burnham, while, while the Labour Party nationally has been in opposition, Andy Burnham has been able to do stuff and see change. On the subject of uh, Labour uh, and a potential Labour government whenever the next election comes in, obviously Keir Starmer is going to want to win back these seats in the North that Labour lost in 2019 that we've been discussing. I mean, how you mentioned earlier that you're asking people at one of your shows whether uh, some key Labour policies and no one could really think think of any. I mean, how do you think they're doing in terms of winning back not just the country, but these Red Wall voters who sort of deserted them in such dramatic fashion? Do you, do you get a sense when you're back up in, in Burnley that people are, are warming to Keir Starmer and Labour's offer, or, or are they just sort of fed up fed up with the Conservatives and that's what that's why we're seeing the polls the way they yeah. are at the moment. I think I think both of those things, but I think that the the anti Tory feeling is 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 very, very strong. And I'll tell you what is interesting. In fact we did this at the I think it was at the Palladium. So Keir Starmer, I've talked to him about this, he identifies his strategy for to be for, for winning the election in three phases. Phase one was essentially decontaminating the Labour brand post Corbyn showing that the Labour Party was changing and had changed. Phase two was showing that the Tories are unfit to govern and that the country needs a change. Phase three is showing what the change will be. And what's, what was interesting is that uh, I gave you the third raised hands, but on the first two, people accepted he'd been very successful. So what I say now, and the thing I'd say about Keir Starmer, I think this is how he was as a lawyer. I think it is how he's as a human being and as a politician. I think he's very methodical. I think he's unlike Johnson, who's just chaos, and unlike um, Sunak, who I think is quite technocratic in a kind of management consultant type way. I think I think Keir's very got a clear sense of where he wants to get to and how he's going to get there, and then he sort of just. He just plots, plots his way along. Um, so I'm hoping that in the coming year, that third part becomes what people are talking about in relation to the Labour Party. You've got to remember, I mean, look, I worked with Tony in the 1997 election and we got that massive swing and a huge landslide. For Labour to get an overall majority, they've got to get a bigger swing than we got in 1997. So that's tough. That's a tough ask. Um, now, I do think the Tories have... You know, they're just, they've just been so bad. I mean, people are worse off. The public services are in a mess. They lie the whole time. I think we've seen the introduction of pretty major corruption for the first time, really, in central government. I, mean, I just think there's so much bad stuff. Um, but I, the thing I always say to my friends in the Labour Party is that it's never enough for the other lot just to be rubbish. You've got to, you've got to show that you're better than them. I saw them... Uh, Keir Starmer was in Lancashire uh, this week on a campaign visit, and he he said that Labour under him would be tough on crime and tough on the the causes of crime, which uh, uh, I didn't realize. It, it obviously harks back to the the, the days of yeah. Blair. So I wonder if he's 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 taking taking a few leaves out of his. Well, I think book. I think I think that one of the big strategic errors that Labour made when we lost to uh, David Cameron the coalition in twenty ten is that the coalition, they, they hammered this line about the mess we inherited, the mess we inherited. They're doing it now at the moment. The Tory chairman every day is posting this picture of Liam Burns' letter saying there's no money left, which was a, you know, a joke. Uh, and I think everyone knows it's a joke, but they're going to try to 
portray labor as being economically unsound and unsafe and it's a it's a pretty obvious game that they're playing but the fact is that you know 13 years of tour of labor economy against 13 years of this lot the labor win hands down apart you know the crash was the clearly you know that is a bit like saying well yeah that was quite a big thing it was a big thing but it wasn't as it were you know what gordon brown's stewardship of the economy i think was a success for labor you know, and I think the other thing that's happening in our politics is that I don't know whether people will buy what Sunak obviously wants is for people to sort of buy the idea that Johnson and Trust were sort of aberrations, nothing to do with MeGov. I'm the new, I'm the new guy. I'm a new prime minister. But we've had we've had five prime ministers in six years. We used to laugh at the Italians when it was like this, and they were they were averaging about once every eighteen months, two years. We're we're whipping through them once a year. So the last question I'll ask, I'll just give you a chance to talk a bit about your, your book, but what, but what can I do, which I guess in some respects links into some of the issues we've been talking about. So I guess it's about people, how people who perhaps feel disengaged from politics, like it's, it's sort of practical tips, isn't it, for how they can make, make a difference? Yeah, I mean, the first, it's, it's really in three, three parts. The first part is kind of where it's all gone wrong. And I talk about these three Ps, populism, polarisation and post-truth. Uh, I think Brexit was a, was a consequence of populism and polarisation and post-truth. Johnson becoming prime minister was. And then the second part is really about how do you as an individual who wants to make a difference, who wants to get involved, and I'm not just talking about young people, I'm talking about everybody, and who's asking that question, but what can I do? It's basically giving people advice as to how to look after themselves, how to build teams, how to campaign, how to build a message, how to... Uh, how to how to have, to argue effectively? I was really chuffed this morning. Actually, the very first event I've done with the book was to um, a, uh, an organisation called Voice Twenty One, which is an organisation which teaches teachers to teach to children in schools the importance of speaking, communicating, and arguing and debating. And you know, and it's a very interesting thing. We talk about literacy and numeracy, and this is oracy about you know the spoken word. And so there's a whole thing in there about the importance of being able to speak in public and persuade and convince and so forth. And then the third part really is about, well, if you've, and I warn people about how tough it is and how difficult and the abuse and social media and all that stuff. And then the third part is if, if having heard all you've heard, you still want to do it, not just be a campaigner, because a lot of the book is just about how to campaign. But if you want to go into politics, I then give advice about how you might do that in terms of the processes and so forth. So, And I'm really hoping that it will galvanize those who read it to understand that, you know, I think the five, is it five? It is what it is. Yeah, the five most deadening words in the English language at the moment to me, I hear it all the time, is, oh, it is what it is. Like, you can't do anything about it. You know, you can always do something about it. And the question is, what is it that you can do? And I guess my answer to the question, but what can I do, is, well, you've got to do whatever you can do. And if you, if you care enough about the world around you, which I think most people do, um, is there anything that we can actually do? And, of course, you know, we are going into an election period. People will be thinking about a change of government. But, you know, to my mind, it's, it's not just about the government. It's about all of us and what we do. So the book is called But What Can I Do? Uh, it's out on May the 11th, I think. And uh, the Rest is Politics live show is coming to Harrogate on May the 16th. So it's a busy, a busy month for you, Alistair. Thanks so much for taking the time today. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.